0: Dan and choir and instrumentalist for wonderful worship this morning. We continue in our sermon series from the Johannine Gospel. So make your way to John chapter 2. We'll look at John chapter 20 in just a moment as well. If you turn to John chapter 2, new wine, new temple. First of all, new wine. New wine. Every family who hosts a wedding is well aware of the potential horror of running out of food before the festivities are finished. For two consecutive summers, we invited the entire membership of First Baptist Amarillo to join our family at the Civic Center, reception for a daughter's wedding, one in 2016 and one in 2017. Unsure about how many guests would attend the reception, we bought way, way too much food, leaving a lot of leftovers. Amongst the leftovers were 400 pieces of wedding cake, 300 barbecue sandwiches, four restaurant-sized bags of chips, gallons of unopened hot sauce, and enough chicken sandwiches to make the Colonel blush himself. Lots of leftovers. Why the over-ordering? all the leftovers, all the waste at the wedding because I'd invited 5,000 guests and I was determined I would not run out of food. There is no more helpless feeling as a host than to realize that the fishes and the loaves are few and there is no Jesus anywhere who could multiply the manna. In our first story, the bridegroom is a host of an ancient wedding. And he's facing humiliation because right in the middle of the celebration, they have run out of wine. Now, those wedding receptions in Judaism were seven days long. Well, a wedding, verses 1 through 3, wedding. Notice how the story begins. On the third day. Now, some scholars see a reference from the evangelist to Easter. There may be something there. On the third day. Already here in John chapter 2, the gospel writer is tipping his hat to the end of the story when we have a glorious resurrection on the third day. On the third day. Meaning it's a sign on the third day when Jesus is resurrected and the Messiah has begun the new age, the wine will flow liberally. A, a new wine, a new age, a, a new Messiah, a new kingdom on the third day. Well, indeed, there might be a subtle hint at the end of the book here so early, but also he's keeping the calendar of Jesus. Turn back to 119 and we see the first day here in 1.19. And this is the witness of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem asking, Who are you? Well, this begins after the theological introduction. This begins the first week in the life and ministry of our Lord. So he's keeping the calendar. Look at verse 29 of chapter 1. The next day there in verse 29, the next day. Well, look at verse 35. What does it say? Again, the next day. Well, as you follow these next days through, and then look at verse 43 of chapter 1, the next day. So now we're on day four. He's keeping the calendar of our Lord for you, and he's giving you a day-by-day calendar of that first week of the ministry of Jesus. And so When we get to chapter 2 verse 1 on the third day that is the third day after the fourth day if you've counted through with him so now we're at the whole week we're at the seventh day and so we have a rendering of the first week of ministry of our lord a week that culminates with jesus turning water into wine now other scholars see a connection to genesis here The one that he told us in the prologue that everything was made by him and through him. That the Messiah is God's agent of creation. Now he does a new creation with a new wine and the beginning of the miracles of the Messiah. After keeping Jesus' calendar, we're told that the event is, notice verse 1, a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, the couple remains nameless. We don't know who the bride and the groom are, but we're very quickly introduced in verse 3 to the mother of Jesus. Now, think who's invited to this wedding. We have Jesus invited. He evidently brings his disciples. Nathaniel, being from, from Cana, he, he would have known Probably several of the guests. And then in verse 12 of chapter 2, we learn that his brothers were probably there too. So the invitation to Mary, her oldest son Jesus, and then the brothers of Jesus and the disciples, it must surely have been a close family to, to Mary, to Jesus, to the Holy Family you know when you have a wedding your closest friends step up and kind of run the reception one in charge of this another in charge of that apparently mary was kind of in charge of catering the affair do you notice when the wine is running out who steps up who's in charge who wants to make sure we do not have a disaster it is none other than mary herself and so surprised therefore that she quickly steps up to deal with the waning supply Of wine, Mary running the reception at the wedding in Cana, a galley. Well, I told you who was at the wedding Mary and Jesus and Jesus' siblings and the disciples. Sometimes who's not on the invitation list tells you as much as who is on the list. Do you notice that Joseph is missing? You notice, no reference. Would the whole family be there and Joseph not be there? A clear explanation, Mary's probably a widow already by now. In fact, early traditions tell us that by the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, that Mary was a widow. In fact, the last time we heard anything about Joseph was all the way back to Luke's Gospel, chapter two, when Jesus is only 12 years old. Now he's about 30. A lot of years have passed and a lot has happened. And so, well, Joseph has probably died by now. And therefore, being a widow, Upon whom would Mary have leaned heavily? Firstborn son, the one that many parents turn to. No surprise, therefore, that Mary is looking to Jesus to supply that which is missing. Now, what I'm about to tell you is not a protest. But the modern-day Baptist wedding consists of little more than a 30-minute sanctuary ceremony followed by a two-hour reception. Amen. I'm all for it. But that's what weddings have come to today. But antiquity, the center of the Jewish wedding, was this celebratory feast that went on for seven days. I would have run out of food too if I had to feed you for seven days at the girls' weddings. Seven days. No wonder the poor lad, the groom, has run out of food. Well, our our knowledge of ancient Jewish weddings is somewhat limited. But we do know from biblical sources and elsewhere that the groom and his men would have gone to the home of the bride. Often they would go at night with torchlight, it was a torchlight sight as they came at night, winding down the hill. They went to the, to the home of the bride. They picked her up, and they bring her back to the groom's house for the seven-day celebration of the wedding. And now the situation is dire. The guests have drunk all the wine. In this culture of shame, the duties of hospitality were not to be taken lightly. Perhaps the bridegroom was poor, and, well, he did the best he could, and he was simply counting on the guests not to overdo it. And, well, he just hoped for the best, and it didn't turn out that way, and even beyond embarrassment. Some scholars think that you could have a liability leading to a lawsuit if you didn't provide for your guest at the wedding. He might even be liable to a lawsuit for not being a good host in this culture of shame. Now, I do want to point out one theological insight, and this is free. Have you ever noticed in the Bible, it's the groom's family that pays for the wedding reception? Have you noticed that? That is the godly, biblical way, right here. That's the way it should be done. So said the preacher with three daughters. It's embarrassing to run out when you're supposed to be supplying refreshments for your guests. At this year's fall festival, October the 31st, the weather was much warmer than they had predicted. October the 31st, the Family Life Center staff had already purchased a mountain of chocolate and you brought more chocolate and put it in the boxes for our guests coming for Fall Festival. We should have had an ample supply of Twix and Kit Kats and Hershey bars and bubble gum, but when the doors opened, my goodness, it seemed as if all of Amarillo had decided to come to the Fall Festival at First Baptist Church, and why not? Everything's free, the blow ups, the frito pie, the candy, the fun, it's all it's a gift from us to our community. It keeps our children safe. And well, it's an outreach for us. And well, less than halfway through, I noticed that the mountain of candy had turned into a molehill. And I thought, oh my, we're going to be embarrassed. And so I Ran to my trusted friend, Randy Hell. I asked him where his Jeep was parked. He said, right out front. I said, go get in it, I'm going to join you. We ran up to CVS right here at Washington in I-40. It was good thing it was on sale. We literally would take displays and just dump them into our cart. We just dumped them in our cart. People were at the guest register taking overs and unders on what our bill was going to be and <laughs> The guy behind me was frustrated because our bill was about $700. And how long does it take to purchase $700, bag at a time, scanning? And so we jumped in the Jeep. We called ahead for a crew of students to meet us at the Jeep and rush it back in. And in just the nick of time, the chocolate continued to flow. But, man, it was close. Why did I do that? I didn't want to be embarrassed. We'd invited the whole community to come, and I didn't want you to be embarrassed, and we were glad they came, and we would have done whatever it took to provide for our guests. The groom's family must have felt that way, like a, a fall festival evening, and the guests are just pouring in, and, well, all the wine is running low, and what to do? Now, do you realize that at this point In John's gospel, we don't have a single miracle. Don't miss that. That's important. There's no blind who have received their sight. Not one blind man can now see. There is no multiplying of the bread and the fish. There are no lame who are leaping. We have just started the story. We are in the first week. Mary had seen none of that. You with me? But somehow Mary knows that her oldest son will be able to supply what is missing. You see, Mary knew that the angels had prophesied that this miracle within her would be the Messiah. Mary knew that she was a virgin when she conceived, and so however she was processing it, however she was making sense of it, she knew that her eldest son was the Son of God. 2-4, we have the word, my hour. My hour. Look at verse 3. And the wine gave out. The mother of Jesus said to him, like he's supposed to fix it. They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My horror, my hour has not yet come. Now, way too much has been made of Jesus' response addressing Mary as woman. In the Greek, the, it is not offensive. He's not saying woman. It is woman. It's not an unkind response. It's not cold like it comes across in English. Nevertheless, however, the fact that Jesus now calls her woman and not mother is an indication of a new stage in their relationship. The stage of his public ministry Jesus is no longer primarily the son of Mary, not even the son of Joseph. Now he is, as we're told in John chapter 1, he is now the son of man, the one who has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Following the polite, but somewhat distanced address of woman. Then he says, literally, if I translate it for you, what to me and to you? What to me and to you? It's a Greek idiom. It's used in the Septuagint. It's used in the New Testament. It's saying something like this. At the beginning of my ministry, I cannot have pressed upon me any human agenda I now exist to do the will of the Father, and only the will of the Father. Your wine and your wedding, Mary, they are subordinate as my ministry this very week has begun." Now, we can't forget that Mary had birthed him and nursed him and watched him fall when he learned to walk. She had also grown to rely upon him as A carpenter, don't forget that. He was a tradesman. He provided for the family, especially and most likely with Father Joseph dead. Now, all of that must be subordinate to the plan of the Father and the ministry of our Lord as he ushers in the kingdom. Therefore, Jesus says... My hour has not yet come. Now, what is the hour in John's Gospel? Is a word used repeatedly. There's some really rich theological words in John's Gospel. Brad introduced you to one last week, logos, a word. This is another one of those John words that is just so rich and full of meaning. In John's gospel, the word hour is a representation of his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension to the Father. John 7, John 8, John 12, John 27. On and on it goes. John 17, my hour The hour is a reference to the passion of our Lord, his death, his glorious resurrection, and his ascension to the Father. Mary and Jesus are operating on two different planes. She's most worried about embarrassment for the groom and the family at the wedding. And Jesus is worried about the beginning of his ministry, that the true age of the liberal wine of the Messiah is upon us. That's mentioned, that wine in Jeremiah and Hosea and Amos, that messianic wine that flows liberally with the coming of the kingdom of God. How often does Jesus use the image of a wedding and a wedding banquet as the arrival of the Messianic age, Matthew 22, Matthew 25. They're thinking about two different things. Mary's worried about the guests not having some more wine to drink, and Jesus is telling her the real wedding banquet has arrived. I am the Messiah. I am the bridegroom. I'm forming my bride, the church. They're on two different pages At this point, so the whole story becomes an acted parable. Jesus declares the hour of the new wine. The hour of his glorification has not yet fully come. That ultimately Jesus is that bridegroom who will supply the unending supply of the wine of the new age. Look what Mary says, verse 5. Whatever he says, verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, you do it. Now, Mary's not put off by the fact Jesus calls her woman and says, what to me and to you. She now has her request and proper perspective, and yet you realize he's spoken to her in such a way that she fully expects he's going to solve the problem. And therefore, Mary says, whatever He says to you, do it. Has there ever been any better advice given by anyone to us? Whatever Jesus says, you do it. Whatever he requests of you, whatever he commands you, whatever he requires of you, you do it. Six stone pots. Verse 6. The reader's eye is suddenly captured on these six stone pots, these enormous pots. In fact, the translations tell us they're 20 or 30 gallons. Now, these were ceremonial pots. The tradition, the elders were, you had to have clean hands before a Jew could eat, and so the guests would have come. These were pots used to wash their hands, ceremonially clean before the banquet. Six stone water pots. Now, if you're doing the math, we have somewhere around a gift of Jesus to the groom of 150 gallons of choice wine worth a tremendous amount of money. Seven and eight, the brim. Fill the water pots and they filled them to the brim, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. Up to the brim, fill them with water, to the brim. I want you to know there's nothing, nothing here of watering down the wine. Nothing can be added. In fact, what we're doing is we're drawing out with the ladle and take it to the master of ceremonies. The groom would also have chosen a close friend to be the master of ceremonies at the reception and take him the wine. And he is so confused. Why, like everybody else, they serve the good stuff first and when the senses and the tongue are dulled by, well, the good wine, then they get out the imitation, the cheap stuff, and try to sneak it in on the guests who've been dulled a bit by the good wine. What is this? That you have saved this incredible wine to the end. You have saved, verses 9 and 10, the good wine and to the end. Then look at verse 11. This is the beginning. You don't miss this word of the signs. This is the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed. Now there are six different occasions in John's Gospel when Jesus does a miracle, and we're told it's a sign. Now, what does a sign do? It points to something else. And the Samai, the signs in John's gospel point to the fact that he is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't call them signs. They call the mighty works. When Jesus does a miracle, it's from the word dynamite. They call them mighty works. Well, John didn't see it that way. Yes, they're mighty works, but they're bigger than that, John says. John says they are signs. And what happens after they see the sign? Look at the end of verse 11. His disciples believed in him. Now quickly turn to to John chapter 20. I want you to see this. John chapter 20 and verse 30. John twenty thirty. Many other signs. He gives us six. And then he wants you to know that there were a lot of other signs, therefore, that Jesus also performed at the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. There's all sorts of miracles Jesus did that didn't get recorded. But these signs have been written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. There it is. I chose these, say my I. I chose these signs, John says, so you may believe. Now back to John chapter 2. What happened after the sign? The disciples believed exactly what John had hoped that they would do. The signs point to the Messiah that you may believe. Well, we had new wine, now we have new temple, verses 13 through 22. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus only goes to the Passover one time. If all you had was the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would conclude that the ministry of our Lord was simply a one-year event. It is John's Gospel that gives us three possibly four different Passover trips. You know, that would be an annual trip. And so when we know Jesus went three or four times at the beginning of his ministry, then we see here that his ministry is more like three years and not one year. You following me? Without John, we wouldn't know that. This early trip to Jerusalem is not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And when he gets there, House of Merchandise, verses 14-14, to 16, he found the temple, those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated. He made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple. Look at verse 16. He said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. Jesus is most likely in the court of Gentiles where the merchants are peddling their wares. You know, pilgrims from faraway places like Galilee couldn't bring the sacrificial animals all that way. It was a service to them. They had the animals available there in the court of the Gentiles. And there were a lot of different coinages operating in the Roman Empire. There was only one coinage appropriate to receive the temple tax paid by all Jewish males 20 years of age and above, so to make sure the alloy was pure and the coin was right. They traded the coins, That coins were exchanged, so we have the money changers to get the right coinage, and we have the sellers of the sheep. They're all there in John's day as he records the first week of Jesus's life. Now, a lot of writers talk about how they were upping the charge of the sheep and the exchange rate was off because, well, it's kind of like, you know, buying sunscreen on the beach. It's really expensive there. That's Some people complain. That's not anything in the text about that, however. In fact, what he complains about in the text is his father's house has become a house of merchandise. In Zechariah 14, we read, and on that day, there will no longer be a merchant in the house of the Lord Almighty, or, or Malachi, and suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple and he will purify the Levites, like gold and silver. It, it wasn't that they were greedy or cheating, at least that's not the indication of the text. It was the lack of purity in their worship. And so he who comes, just like He provides a new wine, he is the new temple. He comes himself as the new temple, an authority greater than those over the old temple. And he acts out a prophecy with a sweeping messianic action of turning over the table, whipping the cords and running them out and making pure the worship. Look at verse 18. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, look what they asked for. What sign? There it is again. What sign do you give? In fact, the Jews don't say you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. What they're saying is something like this. Rabbi, you're acting like you're the Messiah. I need to see a sign. If you're you're the Messiah, show me the sign. They don't even argue that they need to be purified. That's not the issue. The issue is only the Messiah is the new temple and has the authority to do that. And Jesus says what? What's the sign? You tear down this temple and in three days I will build it back you know what they say oh we've been building this temple for 46 years it's like a road project in Amarillo it goes on and on and on and on and on how in the world are you gonna build it back in three days and John tells us he wasn't talking about stones he was talking about his body And they remembered this. You remember at the trial of Jesus when they accused him, they said, you said you could tear down the temple and build it back in three days. Do you remember that? Or even when he's hanging on the cross, they say, hey, 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 you, you said you could tear down the, they tore down the temple, you could build it back in three days. Look at you, you can't build anything up there. You see, new wine, Messiah is here. His body is the true temple for It is in Jesus that God dwells. You see that? New wine, new temple. In fact, every time in the Gospels they ask for a sign, the only sign Jesus will give them is, you just wait. When the tomb is empty, that will be your sign. He was speaking of his body. The acts of turning water into wine and turning the tables over in the temple are messianic claims. The Messiah is here. The the wedding celebration has begun. The groom has arrived for his bride. There is one who is the true temple. The true indwelling of God has arrived. More powerful than the stones that took 46 years to build together. Now, look at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding the signs which he was doing. So, the new wine, they see the sign, they believe. The turning over the tables, they see the sign, and they believe. And now, the only question that's left is, you're having seen the signs. What will you do? Let us pray. Oh God, just as surely as those first century disciples who saw the sign, we have engaged with the text and we have recreated that first week in the ministry of our Lord. When the disciples saw new wine, the sign, they believed. And when others saw the sign of his turning over the tables and that he came as one with authority, they believed. And now the only question that matters is that we, having now seen the signs, what will we do? Amen.